0: A DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Penguin Books, publisher of Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day by Ben Laurie. It's a story collection. It's filled with adult fables. These are short. These are really short. They're oddly haunting. They're dreamlike. They're magical. They will move you in unexpected ways. There's a story involving an octopus. There's a story involving Bigfoot. There's even a story in the book that's not supposed to be in the book. It's called the TV. It was originally published in The New Yorker. This is stories for nighttime and some for the day. Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, one of a kind, a thoroughly entertaining antidote to rigid thinking and excessive seriousness, end quote. Who doesn't need that? Who doesn't need an antidote to rigid thinking and excessive seriousness stories for nighttime and some for the day it's available now by ben Laurie. go and get it it's a book oh my god
0: you
2: are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
1: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful <laughs> Jesus, what a struggle, you know?
2: It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now
0: here's your host, Brad
2: Listy.
1: Just one person at just one time. Right, (laughs) right. All right, everybody, here we go again. My name is Brad Listy. This is the show. It's other people. Thanks for being here. We got a good one lined up for you today. Before we get rolling, I want to do some uh, business stuff. Want to let you know that Other People is now available on Stitcher. If you're a fan of the Stitcher app. You can listen to other people right there on the Stitcher app. Subscribe for free. The app is free. It's all free. We're available on Stitcher, Stitcher stitcher.com. Check it out. Uh, While I'm at it, I should mention that The Nervous Breakdown, my online culture magazine and literary community, it has its own podcasts, its own audio content, all of that audio content now available on Stitcher too. So check out The Nervous Breakdown on Stitcher uh, and subscribe to it. Subscribe to it all. It's free. It's fun. Go do it. Uh, what else? Well, I've managed to uh, get some feedback on the podcast. I thought I would share it with you. Uh, it's my, my earliest review, I guess you could say. It comes to me from a buddy of mine named Scott Potasnik. He uh, he felt compelled to text me uh, about uh, the show to let me know his feelings about it. Uh, he says, quote, It was good. You became more comfortable as it went on. I'm glad you didn't shy away from the nasty fruit in the ass stuff but you should have gone even deeper, no pun intended, end quote. Scott is referring to my conversation with Melissa Phoebos, author of Whip Smart in episode two. Uh, I'll let you listen to it to figure out what fruit, uh, fruit in the ass stuff means. Uh, Scott also had to say, quote, Your podcast voice, and he puts the word voice in quotes, Your podcast voice frightens me. You and Wolf Blitzer could have a monotone off. Nevertheless, I'm entertained thus far. So that's good, end quote. So I guess I sound like Wolf Blitzer on this thing. I guess, uh, you know, am I restrained? I'm trying hard to be as natural as possible and to talk like I normally talk when I'm on the podcast. Like this is hopefully how I normally talk. But I think when you sit in front of a microphone, you naturally start getting into a little bit of broadcast mode. And I don't want to sound too much like a, you know, like some sort of radio DJ. But apparently what's happening is that I sound something like Wolf Blitzer This is the first time I've ever heard of this. And I'm assuming it's because uh, I'm I'm on the mic. But maybe I sound like Wolf Blitzer normally. Is that what it is? Am I monotone? I don't know. Uh, If you guys have thoughts, if you want to weigh in on this or other matters, remember you can email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. You can also tweet at me at otherpeoplepod if that works better. Uh, Okay, so moving on uh, with some thoughts about the whole podcast thing and all the technology. This has been on my mind as I've been learning how to do this. You know, basically this is radio and because it's radio, there are possibilities. There are sonic possibilities and uh, this is a show. And as I master the technology, perhaps there can be more showmanship or should I just keep talking? I'm not really sure, but it does occur to me that like sound effects could be added, you know, disgusting sound effects, applicable sound effects, If I'm uh, talking, for instance, and and, and engaging in some narrative uh, storytelling type stuff with atmospherics, and I'm telling you a story about how I'm walking through a meadow, I could potentially include some sort of sound effect where, you know, there's nature sounds, and and you feel like you too are in a meadow with me, frolicking. That could be possible. Uh, It could also, if I'm telling some sort of story involving intense personal anguish, Uh, some sort of painful, humiliating scenario from my past, I could potentially set that story to uh, some sort of touching music to heighten the emotional effect. Those sort of things are possible now that I'm doing uh, a podcast and I have this equipment in my office. Uh, And speaking of, um, you know, intense personal anguish, humiliating stories from the past, uh, yesterday I woke up thinking about An event from my past. This was many years ago. It was 1997. I was on the Appalachian Trail. I was hiking. I was with my uh, my my old dog Merlin, who was no longer with us. R.I.P. We were in Maine. We were in a motel room, taking a night off the trail, resupplying. We had just gotten out of the 100 mile wilderness, and uh, I remember there was a driving rain, a cold rain in August. I was in this motel room, and I was writing a letter to Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. Uh, Why was I doing that? I was looking for work. I was thinking about the future. I was imagining what I was going to do when I left the trail, and I had to go out into the world and try to enter the workforce. And I had a film degree. I didn't really know what to do with it. I was directionless. That was kind of why I was out on the, the Appalachian Trail for three months by myself with a dog. And I decided that maybe I would write them a letter, and I would try to be a PA on one of their movies. I had seen Dead Man Walking. I think that was what was fueling this. I had seen Dead Man Walking. I thought it was good. It was powerful. I figured if I could like go PA on one of their films, carry some cables, uh, run errands, what have you, that maybe this would be uh, my way in and that I could learn something. Uh, I also uh, have an uncle who knows Sister Helen Prejean. He's a priest. He lives down in Louisiana. He knows Sister Helen. Sister Helen wrote the book, Dead Man Walking. So my strategy, I think, was I was going to write this letter. Uh, I was going to send it to my uncle. He was going to pass it off to Sister Helen. Sister Helen was going to pass it off to Tim and Susan. That was the idea. So I'm hunched over this little desk in this shitty motel room in Maine, and I'm writing by hand a letter uh, of some sort, some sort of a job request letter. And I decide, since I don't have very many qualifications, that I'm going to tell them a story. And I'm trying to be charming. And I don't know if you've ever done this before where you're trying to apply for something and you you can't resist the impulse to try to be charming and funny and you overdo it. Pretty much any of that in that kind of scenario uh, amounts to overdoing it. But especially when you're 21 and you've been in the woods for three months, you're prone to this sort of mistake. Uh, I certainly was. And so I write this letter and I tell them this story about when I was like seven or eight years old, and I'm in a park with three of my buddies, Ryan and Ryan and Nathan, my boyhood friends uh, in Wisconsin. And we're in this park and we're getting bullied by the neighborhood bully. His name was John. And uh, he was older than us. He was, you know, it was, it was light stuff. He was putting us in headlocks, he wouldn't let us pass. It was that kind of thing. And so this went on for a while until he got tired of it. He decides he's done with us, he's gonna walk away. So he starts walking away, he's 15 yards away. I reach into my backpack, I pull out a pencil. A number two pencil, a sharpened yellow number two pencil. And my idea is, I'm gonna throw it at him. I'm gonna throw it at this bully, I'm gonna hit him in the head, we're gonna run. And that's gonna be our victory, that's gonna be our revenge and our adrenaline rush. So he's 15 yards away, I throw the pencil. I throw it in a high arc up into the afternoon air. I watch it sail end over end. It's heading straight towards him. And it lands point down in the back pocket of his blue jeans. I shit you not. This is what happened. I throw this pencil end over end in a high arc. And it it lands in the back pocket of his jeans. Point down. He walks in stride. Never notices it. Walks away. My pencil in his back pocket. I tell this story to uh, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon, I never heard back, Uh, I I put the letter in an envelope, I sent it to my uncle, the priest, and funneled it to them through a nun. Not something that I'm entirely proud of, uh, something that still causes me uh, some embarrassment to this day, but you make mistakes in life, I guess. Anyway, uh, moving on to bigger and better things Today's show, our guest, my guest, Emma Straub Emma Straub, uh, bookseller in Brooklyn at Book Court Author of the novella Flyover State The story collection, Other People We Married And forthcoming from Riverhead Press A novel, her debut novel Called Laura Lamont's Life in Pictures Uh, This is a very talented writer I think she's a rising star I think a lot of people think that uh, she's also just kind of a relentlessly positive force of nature. You just like her. She's a likable person. She's got that, uh, and she's talented. And I don't know. I think there's just a lot of people out there who are sort of cheering her on, and you get to listen to her talk to me. So, so now, uh, yeah. tell me a little bit. Like, this is what I know about you. Uh, you're Here's an a- author. Uh, and tell me if I go wrong at any point. Uh, I will. You work at book court, is that correct? You're correct. A, You're a bookseller in addition to being an author. Uh, yes. you you seem to me like my version of you in my mind is that you're like incredibly well adjusted. You seem very uh, bright and sunny and cheerful and not like twisted <laughs> mentally. am I correct or...
2: <laughs> um, I am well adjusted, yes. Um, I am sunny. I do I get scolded at book court for laughing too loudly and for talking to people too much. So yeah, I mean, I am um I am a well-adjusted chatterbox. I think that part of that comes from having a father who writes very dark and scary books. Um so like I grew up in a house with like, you know, um many copies of like zombie movies and um obscure weapons and um you know pictures of dead bodies and things like that. Um
1: and I your, fa- and your father idea. we should we should uh clarify, your father is the author Peter Straub.
2: Yes, Peter Straub. He has written nineteen novels, I think, which is a lot. Um yeah, I think that's why I'm so funny. You know, it, it has something to do with with um, reacting to that. Although my father himself is a fairly funny individual. so.
1: Well, that's the thing. We're all- so now your work, uh, you know, is your work darker than you are? Would you categorize it as such? Because sometimes I feel like people who are, who are super dark in person write maybe lighter stuff or, co- you know, more comedic stuff. Or people who are uh, super light in person might deal with the darker stuff creatively. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. One one of my friends um, who I, a, a, another writer whose name is Adam Wilson, who I work with at Book Court, he told me after he read my book that he was really um, relieved to know that I, I sometimes had dark thoughts. <laughs> that's
1: how I feel. And that
2: I wasn't always in a good mood and that I was, in fact, very sarcastic, which I am. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think that I, I do, I, I I care very much about being friendly to people, and I always want people to like me, so I'm nice to people, even if I think they're assholes. Um, but in, in my fiction, I can be much more ruthless.
1: Okay, this is good. This comforts me, Emma. I, I need to know this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I do, you know, I do like, um, I do like to bake I often bake for people. Well, see, this is so the I other thing. Have... It's like
1: I see you online and it's like, you know, you're, you're cracking jokes, you're super chatty, you're baking cupcakes. I'm like, this cr- I want this girl's <laughs> life. You know, I want to be friends <laughs> with her.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, like I, I was teaching a class um, for this local workshop here in New York called the Sackett Street Writing Workshop. I was teaching a class that just ended last night and I baked them in apple rhubarb cobbler for the last class and they all looked at me I think like I was a little bit insane um but they ate it anyway they didn't worry that I was poisoning them yeah, which no. I didn't
1: no of course I mean that's who, who wouldn't I, love that who, who, who could look yeah. down their nose at that for god's sake
2: yeah yeah and I ate the leftovers for breakfast this morning and it was even better so now and even better than last night
1: okay so tell me like today just to get like a, a snapshot of a day in the life like <laughs> what have you done today how was your day gone <laughs>
2: Um, today I have done very, very little. I'm, right now I'm waiting for notes on my novel from my editor at Riverhead, so I am doing very little but twiddling my thumbs. My big plan for the day was to watch last night's episode of True Blood, Uh, but I didn't even get to that because I had lunch with one student from this class that I just mentioned, and then I had coffee with another student from that class, Um, and uh, then this evening, I'm going to a book party for Rebecca Wolf, who's, um, you know, the editor of Fence and the author of a new novel that's coming out from Riverhead uh, called The Beginners, Um, so that's that's my literary life today, it's it's very low-impact.
1: And and you live in Brooklyn? Is that correct? Or I
2: I live I live in Brooklyn, New York. I How, do. How's
1: that? And did were you raised in New York, or did you move? There? I was.
2: Yes, I grew up. I grew up on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. Um, and then I left. I went to college in Oberlin at Oberlin in Oberlin, Ohio, um, which was a terrifying place. There are like two stoplights, and everyone is depressed and miserable. And uh, I, I'm I, from, from
1: like Indiana. I get years. it. <laughs>
2: yeah, I spent four years just drinking as much beer as physically possible and eating as many tater tots as physically possible, which is a lot of tater tots. Sure. Um, so then I then I ran back to New York, um, where I happily stayed until I went to graduate school um, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a wonderful place. Um, and then I moved back to New York.
1: So why Wisconsin? Where I've been
2: uh because they accepted me.
1: Oh, because, well, I uh, I should I should mention I have I was born in Milwaukee, so I have uh where are Midwest, you? Yeah, Midwestern roots. I'm a I oh. was, spent uh like the first 8 years of my childhood essentially in uh, Cedarburg, which is just north of Milwaukee. Yes,
2: Yes, of course. Um both my my entire family is from Wisconsin and both of my parents grew up in Milwaukee. Um so I have I have only fond feelings for the place.
1: <laughs> I, th- I don't
2: know if that's true for them having grew up
0: there. No, but, I, but I have, I, I have I like really
1: it. warm memories of it. I mean, I was it was like, you know, birth until I was 10, and I just, yeah. I, I loved I loved it. You know, I had a great time yeah. there. I had great friends, and I think the people up in, well, I call it the Great White North, are sort of underrated. Uh, they don't get the credit they deserve. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I mean, now now everybody's crazy for, you know, Bonnie there, So people think that Wisconsin is cool again because he's friends with Kanye West and... <laughs> Jay Z, right? Um, yeah, I I loved I loved being in Wisconsin more than I can say. It I, I thought that I mean for me having a break from New York was really um, healthy, both for me personally and um, as a writer. And I can't I can't say enough good things about Wisconsin. My my next, the novel starts in in um, Door County, Wisconsin, and then uh. it moves on. It moves, actually, west to Los Angeles. Um,
1: Where I am currently. takes
2: place in, place in LA. Yes, I know. Um, but it does start in Wisconsin, and there, there are a couple of chapters that take place in, in Door County, which is Wisconsin's thumb. The thumb to Wisconsin's mitten.
1: Exactly. Now, when you were at uh, Madison, were, were you studying with Lori Moore? Did you study with her? I
2: was. I was. I, I, I went... I went to Madison because I loved Lori so much. I just absolutely worshipped her. Um, And then I was delighted to discover that she is as funny and smart and wicked in person as she is on the page. Um, Well, I have a theory about
1: her. I have a theory about her. Oh,
2: what's your theory?
1: No, I've I've just been thinking about her because, you know, there's some appeal that she has, like a, a specific special appeal and, and yeah. it's across the spectrum, but like I'm, I'm going to get gender specific here and say that male writers, in unusual numbers, tend to gravitate towards her. And I think that she might be like the the literary equivalent of like Helen Mirren or Meryl yes. Streep, where yes. there's sort of something sort of maternal. There's like a maternal feeling, but at the same time, sort of an attraction. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But-
2: Lori is Lori is deeply sexy. She is deeply sexy. I there were other um, Dean Bacopoulos. This will embarrass him, but that's okay. Um, told me that because he he went to the MFA program in Madison also that the boys in his class when they got stories back from Lori they would smell them uh, to see they smelled like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what does Lori? Let's let's set the record straight. What does Lori Moore smell like? We, we need to know. <laughs>
2: Lori, uh, well, hmm, I can't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I can't. I can't um, adequately describe her perfume, (laughs) but I. But I will say that my husband, who moved out to Wisconsin with me for my MFA, um, had an experience once where he was standing in the bookstore in Madison, and someone, something behind him smelled so good that he turned around and it was Laurie. <laughs>
0: wow. <See, I>, <laughs> so I
2: think it's some sort of pheromone thing. Yeah, I mean she is she's a fox. She's a stone cold fox. There there are really no two ways about it.
1: And a nice person? Like when you're in her yes. class.
2: Oh, oh yeah. Oh I love Lori. I love Lori very much. Um and I feel really lucky that I got to study with her and that I get to hang out with her still. Um she has been so supportive of me and just really encouraging and and, and hilarious. I mean, she is hilarious and um, brilliant.
1: And she brilliant. smells terrific. This is awesome. And
2: this, she smells
1: good. <laughs> this, is a, this is the insight that I want to bring to my listeners. I want them to know these things. <laughs> so you're at Madison. You're working on fiction, obviously. You're workshopping it. <laughs> And then you mm-hmm. leave Madison. You return to New York, mm-hmm. and you move to Brooklyn. Like, what did you leave yeah. Madison with? Did you is flyover state stuff that you were workshopping there?
2: Yeah, I um, about half a dozen, about about half the stories in the collection were things that I workshopped. Um, so I had a good sort of sturdy base already um, for my collection. But I wasn't, I wasn't. Planning on trying to send it out to publishers, I didn't think. Um, I don't know. I just. I, I never. I, I always heard how hard it was to get story collections published, um, and I always thought of myself as a novelist, um, <laughs> even though I'd never um, published one. I, I I wrote three novels before I went to my MFA program, um, and then another one when I was in Madison after my program was over. Um, and so even though nobody was interested in, in the least in publishing these novels, I always thought of myself as a novelist, um, because I believe in self delusion. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I, I didn't, ever considered trying to publish the stories as a collection. But then um, this wonderful, wonderful creature, Dave Daly, um, who edits the website Five Chapters, which is a fabulous website. Um, if people aren't familiar with it, they publish one story every week in five installments, Monday through Friday. Um, Dave had published a story of mine called putineska on the five chapters website and he approached me about doing a collection because he wanted to move into print. And when someone um, approaches you and says, I would like to publish your short story collection, will you let me do that? I think the answer is yes. <laughs>
1: sure. Of course. <laughs>
2: My answer was yes. Um, and it's been so much fun. I mean, I, I had, you know, I, I always again I I always assumed that I would enjoy this sort of thing like doing readings and traveling around and talking to people um just the way I always thought of myself as a novelist I always like felt quite sure that this would be one of my um strengths as an author that I would be tireless and um irritating to all <laughs> um but but I, you know I have I've just been I've done I think about 30 readings since the book came out in February, um, and it's been so much fun. I've been I've met so many nice people, and I've baked so many batches of brownie with brownies with sea salt. <laughs> so, I baked so many batches of brownies for my various readings that my husband now refuses to eat them because <laughs> he's given up.
1: <laughs> so, so you like like a reading is an environment you feel comfortable, and you like standing up in front of people and reading. Like that's something that comes yeah, easy. Yeah,
2: I do. I do. You know, I, I've always been ham. Um, and I've always you know, I, I I'm I'm a like I'm a classic little sister where like I, I just want people's attention all the time. Um and I will do like a stupid little dance or like make a funny face in order to, to get people to look at me. Um, and I I've had so much fun doing the readings. One of the really nice things about working at Book Court is that first of all you know i i feel so comfortable there i'm because you know i'm i'm there all the time anyway <clears throat> that when i had my big um party when the book came out there i just i felt like i was in my living room so i was really relaxed and at ease and um that has sort of carried over that feeling where where i don't get nervous anymore um when i'm doing Readings or, or other events. I just I just enjoy them.
1: It doesn't so feel it so doesn't that, feel uh, it doesn't feel like masturbatory or anything to read from your own book. Like that's the I might just I think I have like a, a neurotic thing about it, but I always feel like you know I'm standing up there reading from a book and I feel well. Like... It
2: is. It does. I mean, I, I will say it does. It does get a bit boring if you read the same thing. Like there, there are a couple of stories that I've read a number of times, and I am just sick to death of them. And you know I. I try to move on and I've it's it's nice that there are short story collections I think are actually really easy to read from, you know, where there are 12 stories in the collection so there's a lot for me to pick from. I, with the novel, I don't know how that's going to work um because I sort of hate when people read um and they have to explain everything beforehand and they stop in the middle to explain everything you need to know. And, I really don't like when people do that at readings, and I fear that that's what will happen to me when I, when my novel comes out and I I do readings where I say, oh, but oh god, I forgot you need to know, you know, X,
1: Y, or Z context. Um, yeah. Context. Well, context.
2: So, who hits? Who needs context?
1: Right. Well, and and now also working at book court, you're obviously seeing a lot of readings by other authors, correct?
2: Yes, yes, yes. I I attend. shocking number of readings um at book court uh and at other independent bookstores around new york city i mean i'm at word um which is in greenpoint on an extremely regular basis and mcnally jackson and greenlight all the all the indies in brooklyn the community bookstore there are there are a great number and i you know i know people who work at all of them and um yeah, I think I think you have to. I think you have to be supportive of other people. You know, if I ex- expect people to come to my readings, I sure as hell better show up to theirs and um I actually I actually love readings. I know some people find them totally tedious. Um but I love it and I love hearing people answer questions and um you know, I like clapping for writers. <laughs> 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 writers. Writers, you know, spend so much time alone in their rooms. Um, but I think it's really nice to, to show up when they are actually forced out of their little mole holes. Um, it's nice to show up and, and clap for, for your friends.
1: Well, sure, and you've got to learn. <laughs> and you've got to learn a lot about what works in a reading. I mean, have you, have you seen people who are really good at it? I mean, who's somebody that comes to mind who's just like a badass reader?
2: Colson Whitehead is incredible. He, um, went, he came to the court for the paperback release of, of Sag Harbor soon, fairly soon after I started working there. And he had, like, he, there, there was like an audio visual <laughs> element, like he made us all listen to some disco song. I think it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. I can't remember. Um, but he is really, really funny. I, I I tend to enjoy anything that's funny. I saw um Jumpa Lahiri read this year at um at AWP in DC and I love her. I love her books so much. I think she writes the most beautiful sentences on earth and yet there was not an ounce of humor in what she read, and she read for about forty-five minutes, or at least it felt like that. Um, and I and I almost fell asleep. You know, I mean, so I I think that having a sense of humor is really key to having a good reading. Um, you know, and that that's even true. Like um, Megan O'Rourke read at Book Court from her book, The Long Goodbye, which is, you know, all about her mother dying of cancer and it's all about grief and how, you know, sort of we as a culture sort of don't, don't know how to deal with other people's mourning um, or our own. Even her reading was funny because she, you know, she, she knew that it was hard material. And so she made some jokes and, and the, um, the atmosphere in in the bookstore lightened quite a bit. Um, you know, I think people people need that. Well, especially
1: you know, especially, it's, especially it's with a cancer memoir. I mean, with with a, a book of that with yeah. that subject matter, you've got to you've got to lighten the load a little yeah. bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so now I'm curious to know more about uh, the fact that you're a bookseller, the fact mm-hmm. that you're uh, you know uh, coming up as a writer at this particular time in this particular publishing environment, which I think we can agree is. In flux. Is in flux a good way to put Healthy,
2: it? Healthy, robust.
1: Yeah, robust, but I mean it's also going through a lot of changes and the, the landscape is, is different than it was even like 10 years ago uh, in, in a lot of ways at least. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious. It seems to me like what you're doing, getting out there, being a bookseller, meeting all these writers, interacting with readers and hand-selling books and doing all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. it's actually you know uh, quite a good thing to be doing. Maybe, I'm sure you're not the first author who's worked in a bookstore, but, yeah. um, you know, I just feel like especially doing it in Brooklyn, in a in a community that really still reads and in a community with such great proximity to publishing, uh, yeah. you know, publishing's epicenter, it's probably placed you pretty well in terms of being able to build a network and get to know people and to get a sense of what it takes. Is that is that accurate?
2: Um, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I at Book Court, not only do I meet, um, other writers and readers, but I also, you know, have met scores of agents and editors and publishers and people like that. You know, they, um, a lot of people who work in publishing live in the neighborhood and come in and shop or come in and go to events. So, yeah, I mean, I have absolutely met a lot of people, um, in publishing that way. Um, One of my friends who worked at book court met his editor there. (laughs) You know, I, I can't, um, I don't have a story that's quite that um, much like a romantic comedy, but you know, it, it is, it is absolutely true that, that being at book court or, you know, at any of the independent bookstores in Brooklyn, I think is, gives, gives me a, a a unique and privileged um, outlook in terms of, of the publishing landscape.
1: Well, yeah, and it's like, you know, they are, there's always, you know, you hear these stories about, uh, or you hear advice, you know, go to go to writers' workshops, go to writers' conferences, go to AWP, do things like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like, you know, with, with the indie bookstores in Brooklyn in particular, um, it, they come to you. You know, you don't even have to yeah, leave, you leave your place of business. <laughs> you just kind of sit there and they come in and start talking to you.
2: It's true. It's true. I, I mean, and I... You know, even though I grew up um with what I thought was a fairly well rounded understanding of the publishing universe because my dad was a writer and he had a lot of friends who were editors or agents or whatever um there was a lot that I didn't understand about publishing until I started working at book court um and I think like what i think um, I guess the way the way books are actually sold like the way I I had always envisioned um you know the writer's job um, up to the point of sale. You know like it's sale to the publisher. I I had never really thought about the other half of the equation sure. where the where the book um is printed and bound and then shows up in a box um, you know uh, on the floor of a bookstore. I I never really thought about that and it it has made me um aware of a lot you know like you can really tell um what books a publisher is pushing um by you know the number of copies that come into a bookstore you can really tell um what you know just by like the production value you know you you can tell you know, when, when someone has sprung for the nicer paper, um, you can tell, you know, if somebody's got French flaps on their paperback original, you know, that there, there was, there's sort of money, um, and thought going into that. Um, and then from a book selling perspective, you can, you know, it's, it's been really fun for me to, to sell people books that I really love. Like I have sold so many copies of, like, um, Kate Christensen's novel, The Great Man, just because I love it. I think it's a great book. I think that it's, you know, any any reader of contemporary fiction should read it because it's funny and warm and um, surprising. And the same goes for, you know, sort of some of my all-time faves, like, you know, Donna Tartt's the Secret History, where I, if anyone just comes in and says, okay, I'm going on vacation, I don't know what to read, what should I read? I ask them if they've read The Secret History, and if they say no, then I sell them that book, and they read it, and they come back, and they tell me that they loved it. Um, That's a good you know, my, Yeah, God, isn't it? And then, like, you know, more recently, um, I've been selling people um, John Williams' Stoner, which is, you know, one of the New York Review of Books, Um, you know, reprinted classics. Uh, that is a novel that I never would have picked up except that one of my colleagues at Book Court told me I had to read it, and I did. And it blew my mind, and now I sell it to people every single day. <laughs> okay, so
1: stop there because you're the second person who's brought this book up to me in the last couple of weeks, and I wasn't even yeah. aware of it. I mean, I hate to say it, yeah. but I wasn't. And so, is this about? Yeah. A, is it about a stoner? I mean, or is it? No, different?
2: it's not about a stoner. Okay, um, damn. It's about a guy whose last name I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there are other books that are about stoners. You can find those easily on your own. But this is stoner, John William stoner. Is um, about a man. His last name is Stoner. It's an extremely sad book. Um, I won't tell you too much about the plot for fear that you will not read it because you think it sounds boring. Um, But basically, it's the story of a man's life, and um, it's not, it's got a lot more. Low notes and high ones. <laughs> it's um,
1: about a sick. Man. It's about a sick man who can't get medical marijuana. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, but I mean, really, the book is so the sentences are so gorgeous um, that you don't care how depressing it is because you love him so much. Um, you know, by the end of the first page, you're 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 so sold on this guy's life that you just have to stay with it no matter how fat
1: it is. Okay, well, that's a good wreck, you know. And so, yeah. you uh, you know, you get to see these people come in and out of the store. You hand sell books. You get to see how the publishers uh, are pushing a book based on how the books mm-hmm. look from a production value standpoint and mm-hmm. also from a number of copies shipped standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you get that. And then you have, uh, you know, all these people coming in that work in the business that you're getting to know, mm-hmm. whether they're high, mm-hmm. pro- high profile to low profile writers, to mm-hmm. uh, agents, to editors. So this is mm-hmm. like, a, I, I can see how the, this is working well. And I guess the question <laughs> that's, that's popping up in my mind is that I think of you and I think of, uh, you know, your particular gifts and your particular personality uh, and how nicely it, it fits there because uh, you, you're so good socially and not all writers are. And so I'm trying to kind of uh, imagine myself sitting in the shoes of a writer who's out there who might not be, uh, as good socially, who might not be as comfortable at a reading or who might not be as good, uh-huh. you know, just talking to people, uh, you yeah. know, getting to know yeah. folks and, and networking and stuff like how do you, or what kind of advice would you have for somebody who is trying to publish or might be publishing on a, on a small press or something, their first yeah. story collection or their first novel, yeah. like, what should they be doing?
2: Well, I would say, I mean, I think you you and I have um, a friend in common, Lauren Sarand, who is a phenom um, at this sort of stuff. She, you know, she's an independent PR person who does a lot of work on books. And she just wrote a column for Poets and Writers that I think is um, absolutely required reading um, for anyone uh, in this position because I, I think you're right that like yeah I am chatty and I could talk to a brick wall for three hours about all the books <laughs> that I like <laughs> and sometimes I do um, but you know that I, I, I recognize that that's not true for everyone I have a lot of friends who are writers who are extremely shy um, and who don't feel comfortable being on Twitter or Facebook or whatever um, because they they find that it's just you know too too extroverted for them that they don't they don't like putting themselves out, out there in that way. And I think that the answer, um, that
1: is to be friends with you.
2: (laughs) Well, well, yes. And I mean, that will work, um, for, for some people. Um, but I, you know, I think that there is a way for everyone to use sort of the new social media tools, um, to suit, to suit their own personality, you know, wh- whether it's being on Twitter or Facebook or whether it's just, you know, having a blog of your own um, or, you know, whether it's making a podcast or whether it's contributing to, you know, a place like the Nervous Breakdown where there are a lot of voices um, sort of gathered in one place I think that there, there's a way for for everyone, um, no matter how shy you are, to be involved in this way. And you know, Twitter. I love Twitter, but it is not for everyone. Why do you love it? Um,
1: What's the, what is the appeal? I mean, do you just like the?
2: Oh God! I mean, I guess I just I I've always. Um, <laughs> I've always been an over sharer, I guess um and so the the form really appeals to me that you sort of um you know can can talk about whatever you want all the time, and whatever hour of the day you're awake, there are other people on Twitter um chattering away. I like that it's it really is a community of people i've met I've met a number of writers. Um, in the last couple of years that I've been on Twitter. um, You know, I meet them on Twitter um, and then have met and made friends with them in real life um, and formed, you know, truly um, solid friendships um, that way. I I, I don't know. I think it's funny. I think it's funny to live tweet, uh, you know, (laughs) your cousin's bar mitzvah or whatever. You know, I, I think it's a really good way to entertain yourself um my husband um likes um sort of not heavy metal i wouldn't say heavy metal but he likes um a kind of music that i don't like so i find that if he drags me to a concert with him that if i just have twitter to keep me company and i can describe all of the like enormous sweaty dudes in beards on twitter that then i'm having a good time too um so you know it's 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 um it's a marriage counseling, basically.
1: I get it. I get it. And so, and I do enjoy like live tweeting. My question then becomes like, how do you? How do you? I mean, I guess working at the bookstore, you have time to like be on your phone. You're, you're tweeting from your phone. Is that correct?
2: Um, at the bookstore, at, when I when I'm at book court, I tweet at, from book court's Twitter. Oh right. Um, so I do that on the computers at work. I don't. I don't tweet. You know, from from my own personal account when I'm at
1: work. Sure, you don't.
2: Um, I actually don't.
1: <laughs> You're like if my boss is listening to this, I only tweet from BookCourt.
2: <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I love. I actually love tweeting from BookCourt because it's a whole different um, group of people than, than my own personal sort of followers and. How many
1: How many I followers have. do you have? What's your What's your handle at, at Twitter? So we can blow this. Um,
2: on, on, I am found on Twitter at Emma Straub, just as I am found in real life. Um, I think I have a little over five thousand now.
1: Holy cow! That's a lot. It's a lot.
2: I mean, it's kind of a lot. For it's an author, a I mean, lot.
1: you know. I, I guess there are yeah, authors guess, out there who have like big follow, you know, big huge, a uh, hundred thousand well, followings. But I mean,
2: well, yeah, I, I mean, Maude, you know, Maud Newton, who has an amazing blog and is a wonderful writer, she has about a hundred thousand. I don't know how that happened. Like five thousand seems like a lot to me, but it also seems like, you know, a number of people that I encounter, you know, in various like it's it, it's not it's not a mind blowing number. Like a hundred thousand, that is really a lot.
1: Wait, so Maud Newton has a um, hundred thousand Twitter followers? Yeah. Wow. That, and so, doesn't but the thing it, is, doesn't
2: that make you believe in like good in the world, though?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like it's amazing, but I, you know, I'm trying to to think about why that is, I mean, I guess she's got the blog and she's been doing this forever. I mean, she's sort of like, yeah, she's one of the original book bloggers. Is that, I mean?
0: Yeah. One yeah. Of the I original...
1: think, yeah,
2: I think her she's had that blog for about 10 years, maybe more.
1: Yeah. That's an, um, an eternity. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but she's also, you know, she's also like an information aggregator. I mean, I don't want right. to s- sound reductive, but you know what I mean? Like she's like a yeah. source, like people yeah. go to her to find out what's going yeah. on
2: yeah uh, and yeah. I think, like That's for me, true. like people come to me just to find out like you know what how much butter to put in their chocolate cookies,
1: <laughs> or like they want to know what mod's doing, what's Maud doing? Will you tell me <laughs> uh, but no, you know, I think yeah. that I think that when somebody is a source of information and is consistent with it, like this is my problem is that mm-hmm. a I you know with all the various things I have going on, um, you know, at the nervous breakdown, and I have a ten month old and blah blah blah, like it's just mm-hmm. it's hard for mm-hmm. me to tweak consistently enough to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, though I am like, you know, I constantly tell myself I should do it more. But then the, the other thing is that, um, you know, then it comes down to actually tweeting and I'm, <laughs> i I freeze up. I don't know if this is like a, an outgrowth of like a, a bigger writer's have block.
2: performance or, anxiety?
1: I might, I don't know. Or like, it's like, do people really want to know like what I had for breakfast or do I really?
2: People want to know, Brad. They do. People want to know. Gonna,
1: yes. Well, maybe I'll start to, I'm going to start tweeting more when this, you know, this, this podcast and. <laughs> I'm obviously going to be trying to communicate with people. This is this is the whole point of the podcast, I think, and and me doing yeah. this and calling it other people is, you know, to to get authors talking to each other and to get me talking yeah. to other people as opposed to myself.
2: It's yeah, I think a podcast where you just talk to yourself would be a little sad. <laughs> you know, if you're like, hey Brad, <laughs> hey.
0: Don't tempt me. Did you
2: think breakfast was good today? I did.
0: Thanks.
1: (laughs) I mean, you could
2: try it. I think you should try it at least once.
1: No, there's, you know, it's like the the intros at the beginning of the show. I'm going to do a little bit of a spiel, and then it'll be into the interview. But I think people, a little bit of that goes a long way, you know. (laughs) Yeah. So now tell me about how you balance all this stuff. You know, you're married, you work at the bookstore, you're writing books, you're baking cupcakes. Like, how does it I mean, are you... Well, it seems like you work fast. Do you work fast? Yeah,
2: well and that I mean, and that's only a small fraction of I mean I also you know, I, I volunteer for an organization called Girls Right Now, which pairs up um teenage girl writers with professional women writers. Um I also my husband and I have a design business together where we do screen printing and um, you know, design wedding invitations and things like that. Um what else do I do? I, have, I mean, I have i have lots of... Oh, and I, I, I've been teaching this class for Sackett Street. Um, I have lots of jobs, but I've always had lots of jobs. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's sort of... Um, in some ways, it's easier to get more done the busier you are.
1: I found that in
0: college.
2: I yeah, I, I couldn't understand... Like, when I was in graduate school, I some friends of mine um, would have a really hard time finishing finishing their stories in time for the workshop, um, as if we had, you know, as if we had nine to five jobs and were like, you know, really doing other things. Whereas I was, you know, I thought like, that's what we're there to do. So I was writing constantly. Um, and I, I feel like that now, like I, I have, I have enough time. Like I don't have a full-time job, uh, which gives me the time to do all these other things. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm a busy girl,
1: and it sounds like you're happy girl. with. It sounds like you're happy with you like that. You like all the different things that you're doing. It's not like you're busy yeah. doing stuff you don't like to do.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like I, I mean, I I love I love all these funny little jobs that I have. Um. So yeah, I mean, I you know I think there are a lot of hours in the day. I also require a lot of sleep. Like I, I'm like a 90 year old woman basically, and I go to bed at like ten thirty every night and I sleep for ten
1: hours. <laughs> do you really?
2: I do. Do you know who
1: you're talking to? You're talking to a guy who's ten months into his first kid and you're telling me you sleep ten hours a night. <laughs> <laughs> Christ I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry
2: Brad. You know, I'm sure I'm sure it won't always be this way. Um
1: Oh not if you have children it won't, I guarantee you. Right. <laughs> that uh that is over. <laughs>
2: all right well then just let me enjoy this while i can Yeah,
1: enjoy your enjoy your dreams your 10 hours a night no wonder you're no wonder you're baking cupcakes just wait you'll have that kid and all of a sudden it'll be no more cupcakes no more sunshine no i'm kidding no
2: gloom gloom and microwavable dinner that's
1: when you'll go through your cutting phase you know it'll it'll happen then you'll goth out i've been
2: waiting i've been waiting oh
1: yeah no it'll be my cutting that that novel is going to be something you know (laughs) <laughs>
2: um. well you know a lot of when i um when i met um jeff Klosky, the, the publisher at riverhead to talk about um my novel for the first time he thought it was hilarious that i com- i had my agent compare um my novel to stoner, because it is the story of this woman's life, and a lot of really bad things happened to her, and he thought that was so absurd that I would, you know, as part of my pitch, um, as part of my pitch, I was comparing it to this... Totally obscure book <laughs> that had gone out of print,
1: but um, but which is beloved and is making a comeback. So you're you're prescient, you know you you, you had inside exactly. knowledge.
2: I'm working on it.
1: So how's Riverhead? Are You liking them? I mean, I guess what are you going to say? But I mean, everything's good so far. Um,
2: I like them. I mean, so far, so far, um, I've had uh, you know, they bought me um, so they bought me some cocktails. Nice. Um. That's sort of it so far, um uh, because I'm still waiting on my notes uh but they're very nice they're very nice to me um, the, the other day at book court um jeff jeff clocky and and his five year old son were walking by and they they popped in the bookstore before it was open. Which which Jeff said was very exciting for his son because it was sort of like, you know, behind the scenes at the museum.
1: It's like you gave him like a private uh, private shopping tour essentially.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's like Michael Jackson <laughs> used to get when he went to like the Disney store, you know?
2: Right. And Book is a lot like the Disney store. Um like <laughs> so Disney much World, in common. you know. Yeah.
1: So much in common.
2: Yeah, all the people in the those plushy costumes. <laughs> That's basically Book Court in a nutshell. It's just a whole bunch of plushies. <laughs> reading Stoner. Sitting around
1: reading Stoner. Weeping. Weeping in their plushies. <laughs> So yeah. I got, yeah. I got questions about, uh, you know, cause I, I come from Milwaukee and then I grew up in, uh, mm-hmm. went to like my formative, you know, puberty years in Indiana, uh, mm-hmm. like a far cry from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And so, yeah. you know, as a literate person with a literary bent and somebody who really loves visiting New York, I have this idealized, mm-hmm. I mean, growing up on the Upper West Side, my God, like, you know, like you're just riding the subway by yourself when you're like four and. You have this yeah. sort of like amazing world right outside your door. I mean, what was it like growing up there?
2: Um, well, so <laughs> when yesterday I was at my parents' house. They, they still live in, in the house that I grew up in on, on the Upper West Side. And they were telling me that my um, one of my cousins who is just graduating from high school – she lives in the bay area was going to come to visit and my mom said yeah and you know as a graduation present i'm going to take her to dinner and a broadway show and i said mom why don't you just buy her a bottle of champagne and some whippets and show her a bench in central park because that's what i would have wanted when i graduated from high school
1: Um, consider consider who you're giving the gift to for goodness sake
2: right come on you know um so yeah, I mean I think growing up in New York City is is a is a wild and wonderful experience. Um I had a fabulous time. You know, I did yeah, I I took the subway to um school every day and
1: Where did you go to school um, like when you grew up there? Do you I mean do you just How does that work, you know? Like I used to walk to my little elementary school and I guess you can do that, but I mean how does yeah, that there
2: are some people who do that. Um I I went to school uh, Through the eighth grade, I went to school um, on the Upper West Side, fairly near my parents' house, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, um, which is the second largest Gothic cathedral in the world. Um, I am not an Episcopalian. I'm a non-practicing, half-Jew, half-Lutheran. There's
1: the Wisconsin, the Lutheran.
2: Yeah, <laughs> how can you tell? Uh, yeah, yeah but it's, it's also the tall blonde part, that, um Lutheran part. Um, but I went there and, you know, heard some Bible stories and things like that, which was very pleasant. Um, and then for high school, I went to a school called St. Anne's, which is not what it sounds like. Um, you know, it sounds sort of like pleated... Mini skirts and all girls and things like that. And in reality, it's this very sort of um, Marxist, wonderful place where there are no grades. Everybody's you know smoking outside with their teachers, who they call by their first names. Um,
1: <laughs> See, this is what I wanted. Sort of, this is exactly what yeah. I wanted. And I was in Indiana. <laughs> with you.
2: Yeah, it was it was really glamorous. You know, I smoked um, a pack of cigarettes every day starting when I was 14, and I just thought I was so cool,
1: which I was. Yeah, you were. You were Um, glorious. That's amazing. I used to smoke when I was, uh, you know, Indiana people smoke. I mean, I think we could take just, (laughs) the the state of Indiana could take just about any state, like save maybe North Carolina and Kentucky when it comes to (laughs) tobacco intake.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no that that's one of the great unifiers I think for teenagers.
1: So how'd you quit? You quit smoking? I mean, you can't be still smoking. I can't imagine you smoking. Maybe you do every once in a while. No,
2: no, I don't. No, I quit. I quit. You don't sneak um, one?
1: I sneak one every once in a while, but
2: yeah. I sneak one every once in a while, but the, you know, it, they're now fewer and fewer and farther apart um, because now I, I it seems actually totally disgusting to me when yeah. I, I mean that that first. That first drag is a really beautiful experience always, and I'm like, oh, right, this, Um, and I can't believe that anyone ever quit smoking, but then afterwards, I feel disgusting, um, and I'm quite glad that I am no longer a smoker.
1: Yeah, no, me too, and the thing is, I'm disgusted by other people smoking, but yet when it's me, Mm -hmm. I'm not nearly as disgusted in that moment, and then (laughs) the other thing that I find, though, is that especially now that I get older and I'm in my 30s and... I'm not uh, as resilient as I once was, is that if I go out, I, you know, if I sneak a cigarette, it's because I've had, like, more than two drinks, yeah. you know, I'm out, like, yeah. doing yeah. something. And what I find yeah. is that if I have, you know, five drinks and I wake up, oh. I'm hungover, oh, but I'm, God. like, I got, you know, I'm, I'm hungover, but whatever. If I have five drinks and I smoke one cigarette, I feel, like, <laughs> complete ass. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: I do, it's I like do. I mean, for me, it's, like, terrible. three drinks. But, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, – we're getting old, Brad. Is yeah, that but, what this means?
1: I guess so, but it's also like a situation where, uh, you know, back in the day, old publishing, people smoked. They had drinks with lunch. Like, I feel like everyone's getting healthier. People – like, I, I, I'm i really, really prone to uh, health trends and, like, my, you know – Someone tells you yeah. that, like red wine is good for you. Like that's what I drink now. Like I will drink red wine <laughs> exclusively because it has this stuff in it that makes you sure. live longer. Yeah, and I, I sure. fall for all of that. Uh, <laughs> but back in the day, I just feel like people were a little bit more relaxed about everything, and they weren't nearly so analytical about their consumptions. And there's good, yeah. there's goods and bads to that, I guess.
2: Indeed, indeed. I know. I mean, now I'm so pathetic that when I get off the phone with you, I'm going to go pick up my my CSA farm share. Um, you know, like buckets of kale and lettuce and sugar snap peas.
1: So you have, it's like a farmer's market type situation?
2: Yeah, it's a, a CSA is community supported agriculture where basically you pay in advance. Um, and then every week you go and you pick up your share of vegetables.
1: All organic and and everything. Fresh
2: eggs. Oh yeah.
1: No pesticides
2: no pesticides. Ugh.
1: That's so yeah, that's so like 1980 the pesticides. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, but I mean that's great though, you know, like I think I think people being more conscious of uh of what they eat, you know, that's a good thing. I can't say. I know,
2: it. but like yeah, I agree that it's sort of depressing to think that like writers are like that. You know, like writers in my mind are like you know, tough. Like, does Joan Didion do that? She's tough. I don't know.
1: She, she weighs like fifty five pounds, and she <laughs> still smokes a carton of cigarettes a week. I bet you know. Yeah, knows?
2: yeah. She probably just eats like saltines,
1: and and it's just robust. Yeah, yeah, I don't have that kind of constitution, or at least I don't think that I do. And uh, the other thing is that, and this is maybe why writers are often prone to this kind of stuff, is that have you read any books about food science? Have you read any books like Fast Food Nation or anything like that? Did you ever? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean you read a couple of those books, and if you're a reader, that really stuck with me. Those books really had a yeah. big, you know, they had a big impact on my on my brain. No,
2: stupid Michael Pollan, <laughs> he just ruined everything.
1: Yeah, I was he ruined s- everything. He did. Oh, I'm never a- going
2: to be able to have my Burger King fish fillet sandwich ever again. You know?
1: <laughs> the chicken sandwich was. What, I grew up eating those chicken sandwiches at Burger King. That was yeah. that was really great. Yeah, those were the Although days. Although,
2: you know, I I will say my um, my father-in-law is a Burger King franchisee. So I I won't say anything bad about Burger King. Burger King is fantastic. It's all McDonald's. McDonald's (laughs) is really the problem here. (laughs) It
1: is. The evil demon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what else? What's coming up soon for you? What's the rest of the summer hold?
2: Uh, The rest of the summer is actually, I'm doing a house swap with a woman in your fair city. So I will be kicking around Los Angeles for the month of July, which I'm extremely excited about. Um, the sort of goal is that I finish the next draft of my book, and that I have, um, you know, all the available resources there for um, further research because the book starts in 1920 and ends in the 70s, so it covers a whole lot of ground. And there's this amazing library. I don't know if you've been um, to the Margaret Herrick library that's owned and operated by the um academy of motion pictures no it's incredible oh my god it's incredible if you like the movies you have to go you know it's
1: i it's in a building it's in a building okay it's in a building in los angeles
2: (laughs) it's in a building in los angeles it's sort of surrounded by green stuff it's maybe on i don't know I'm. I'm not good with Los Angeles geography. Well, you're It's in learn. a kind of a weird. I know. It's in a kind of a weird. Like it's not near any of the places I would be otherwise.
1: Is it near the the academy, like the academy headquarters or whatever, down on Los Angeles? Maybe. It's a beautiful sure. building. Is it a beautiful? Is it a beautiful building? Is it like?
2: It's a, a beautiful building.
1: Yeah, maybe that's in, where it is. It's in the
2: beautiful building. Okay. Um. Surely you know it. Um. And it's it's this really wonderfully strict library where they only let you bring in a certain, you know, list of things and you have to show them your driver's license and get a day pass and you can bring in your computer but not any pens. You can't bring in a jacket, you can only write in pencil. Um
0: What the hell?
1: It's
2: got oh, it's amazing though. They have every book on the movies, they have every um, newspaper. You know, every issue of Variety, and um, you know, every every industry newspaper magazine uh, from the beginning.
1: So now, are you a and, big movie buff? I mean, do you consider yourself a big movie buff in addition to being a, a book? Person? Um,
2: I don't know. I mean, I am lo- Yeah, I love. I love movies. I do. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider myself a buff just because I, I know people with brains like that, um, you know, who can tell you every movie that Gene Tierney was ever in. And, you know, and that's not, my brain doesn't quite work like that. Um, it's too lazy. But but I do love movies, and my book is all about um, this woman who becomes a movie star in this, in the studio system, and so I had to learn a lot about, um, the studios and how they worked and
1: well, what was the inspiration uh, for this this is, it seems like it's way out of, outside of your uh, personal It
2: is. Oh, it is. Isn't it wonderful when that happens? I was so bored writing stories about people who were kind of like me even if they weren't at all autobiographical. You know, I was so bored by the thoughts that they could be um, in some alternate universe. Um, so this this novel really was inspired by um, an obituary that I read of the actress Jennifer Jones. Um, who Who's that? Do, I know won... that?
1: Do I know her?
2: No, I mean you might. She she won an Oscar in the forties. Um, she was in a lot of movies, but I had no idea who she was, and I have purposefully stayed away from her movies um, because I didn't. I didn't actually want to write a book about her. You know, um, it's not about her, but but I was so blown away by her obituary because it was so sad. <laughs> It was so sad. You know, it was filled with suicide and pills and multiple marriages and, you know, her children dying and all these wonderful things.
1: No cupcakes. Um,
2: no cupcakes there, man. <laughs> um, so, I, so I wrote a novel about a woman um, who has a sort of similar trajectory um, and yeah, so, it was so much fun to research.
0: So
1: now you're, you're just thought. you're just flipping through the obituaries. Is this something you do regularly?
2: <laughs> don't you? <laughs>
1: yeah, every once in a while, but no, I don't actually. I'm curious. This is a, this is a fascinating element. I love
2: obituaries. I love obituaries. I do. I love them. They're wow. one of my favorite parts of the newspaper.
1: So what? How do you read the newspaper? Do you go to obituaries first? Is this like the first thing you go to?
2: Well, I go. I I read I read all the weddings. I read all the obituaries. Um, then I read about movies, then I read about travel, then I read about real estate, and then maybe I get to the front page.
1: <laughs> and then eventually you get to the news, like the, the news of the day. Oh, in yeah.
2: the food, and the food section.
1: The food section. Yeah. I'm kind of a sports the important,
2: guy. The important, things first, you yeah. know.
1: So what about websites? Like, where do you, where do you go? I mean, uh, I don't want to end on such like a, uh, a, what's the word? Not boring, but just sort of like internet-y note, but I'm curious to know, yeah. what, what no, do you do I, online I mean, besides Twitter? Bunch. Besides Twitter, what are you they're, doing?
2: Um, I read uh, the Paris Review blog. I read The Owl. I read The Hairpin. I read Jezebel. Um, I read Lauren Saran's blog, Lux Lotus. I read... Um, Tumblr. I'm on Tumblr also, so I spend a lot of time reading
1: people's tumblers. What is, can you t- um, can you tell me what the hell Tumblr? I have a Tumblr. Like, <laughs> my website is on a Tumblr. I don't even know what a Tumblr is. What is a Tumblr?
2: Well, I I mean I think of Tumblr as a, as just a more visual um, version of Twitter, where you have it's the same sort of principle where you you follow people's blogs and they follow yours, um, but. I mean, I, I, I just think it's more visual, so people post and repost photographs. Um, that, that's how I use it. I use it just as the more visual side. So, of, for people
1: who want to my... see your, your uh, private photo collection, should go follow you on Tumblr, is that correct? <laughs>
2: um, I guess so. I mean, it's not really, it's not even like pictures of me so much. Although I will say, Brad, I really like the pictures that you always include of yourself in the nerves breakdown emails where there's usually some like kicky background behind you like Hawaii or like a roller coaster, things like that.
1: I'm trying to I'm trying to personalize. I mean, do you feel like I and mean, you can be candid with me here, but like do you feel like I'm embarrassing myself? I keep asking people this, but
2: No, I think they're wonderful. I think they're especially wonderful because you're never smiling. <laughs>
1: Because I'm working on a Saturday, and I'm uh, you're like
2: I'm Brad, and I'm sorry
1: to be here. <laughs> I need to I need to be more sunny. This is my attempt to be more sunny and and converse. And I think if I'm talking, people get more of that from me. But uh, when I'm when I'm I, I'm not comfortable being photographed generally, and so when I'm self photographing, I'm always I'm just focused on making sure that only one of my chins is showing. That's basically where I'm, <laughs> that's where I'm at right there. Uh, yeah, so,
2: you're doing a good job. You're it's doing okay. a good
1: job. Okay. I just I feel like if you add photos people it's are better, more better to look.
2: to look handsome and miserable, you know.
1: Brooding. I like to word. look.
2: Sunny and have three chins. Brooding. Absolutely.
1: Damaged. Um, yeah. wounded Brooding,
2: maybe. damaged.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you're doing
2: a great job. You're doing a great job. Well,
1: you as well. <laughs> Emma, and I got to say I'm I'm very very glad that we had a chance to talk, uh, you Me know. Thank you. I've been sort of uh, a fan of yours from afar for a while. I wish you all the best oh, with Laura Lamont. Thank you and let me know when you're out in LA we should uh, grab a coffee or something
2: yes that's a date it's on the podcast indeed that means it's in stone
1: it's on the record okay well yeah. listen enjoy, enjoy the rest of your for, uh, day out there in Brooklyn and uh, thank you hopefully I'll see you soon
2: yeah thanks for calling
1: okay bye bye
2: okay bye Break
1: all right everybody there you have it that's it that's the show that is me talking with Emma Straub for an hour Emma of Brooklyn, New York, telling me about her life, her work, her upbringing in New York City, her cool, permissive high school in New York City, her tweeting, you name it. Uh, What a delightful human being. That really is the word that comes to mind, delightful. Uh, Really excited to see what she comes up with in the years to come as a writer. I sense a bright future. And if you want to check her out on the web, you can go to www.emmastraub.net. And if you want to visit her on the Twitter, you can uh, go to her Twitter handle, uh, which is at Emma Straub. I believe that's what you call it. It's called a Twitter handle. So uh, before I go, one last thought on this whole Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon letter, pencil in the pocket thing that I was talking about at the open of the show. I think I figured it out. I think it has to do with the whole one in a million thing. I think that was the thematic thread that I was trying to weave when I was writing them the letter in that motel room in Maine when I was 21. I I think I actually might have had some logic there. When I was 7 or 8, I threw that pencil. I knew instinctively that I had just hit a a one-in-a-million shot. How many one-in-a-million shots do you hit? Maybe one in your life, maybe two if you're lucky, three if you're crazy lucky. I hit one. I knew it. Then you fast forward. I'm writing that letter. I'm 21. I'm thinking to myself, this is a one in a million shot. There's no way I'm going to hit it. And so what do I do? I write them a story about the time that I did hit the shot. Does that make any sense? Is there logic there? Maybe there's some sort of logic there. I don't know. I think I'm reaching. Anyway, I'm signing off. Back soon with another program. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening. Et cetera. <laughs>